batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move us. Always thought I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 70s and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now your hosts, Jeremy and Jeff. One half teaspoon for fast, effective relief. It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy. Jeff is not with us this week, but we do have a very exciting guest. Uh, the album we're talking about today is one of my favorites from 1981. It's Def Leppard's High and Dry. And so I wanted to bring a new friend on. This is uh, Neil, who hosts the Def Lep Pod podcast. And guys, if you are looking for a fun podcast, very clever, very funny, this is a great podcast. It's a Def Lep podcast. And so when we come back, Neil and I will be talking about Def Leppard. Obviously, we'll be talking about this great album, High and Dry. That's all coming up right here on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Attention, if you live in Spokane, Washington, and have teeth, this message is for you. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry knows teeth. Incisors, bicuspids, canines, molars, no tooth is too big or too small. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed, I bought the company. With Braun and Jarvis, you'll have the sweetest grill in the inland northwest. And let's be honest, nobody wants a funky grill. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry, 509-464-2391. That's 509-464-2391. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry, quality dentistry that doesn't suck. Hi, this is Jeremy Lennon from the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Did you know that one of the most efficient and effective ways for businesses to reach potential customers is by advertising on podcasts? You see, unlike radio, TV, and social media, where advertising is literally background noise or clutter, podcast listeners are much more tuned in and engaged than those audiences. They've tuned in to actually listen to the podcast. And even more important, podcasts are very niche-oriented. This allows businesses to send their message to a very specific and targeted audience. For instance, the Classic Guitar Rock podcast core demographic is 40 to 60 year old males who like classic rock. Now, if that is your target market, then this podcast is an excellent way to reach them. Oh, and by the way, this podcast is one of the top 3% most popular shows out of over 2 million podcasts globally, according to listennotes.com. You would be pleasantly surprised to see how inexpensive it is to advertise on our podcast. If you are a business owner and want to reach a growing audience around the world, you should talk to us while there's still availability. If you're interested, email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. That's classicguitarrock 
at mail.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. And as promised, we've got Neil here from the Def Lep Pod Podcast. And I, Neil, before I bring you in here, I just want to highly recommend if if you're a Def Leppard fan, you have to, have to listen to this podcast. Even if you're not a huge Def Leppard fan, you have to listen to this podcast because it's just, it's a great podcast. Really well done, funny. It's awesome. So that's the first thing I wanted to say, Neil, is is it's a great podcast and I'm super excited to have you on. No, no thanks, Jeremy. As we were saying earlier, being British, it's quite uh, difficult, difficult for me to take a compliment. So obviously <laughs> I do have an existential crisis going on at the moment. But <laughs> all I can say is thank you very much. And I'd return a favour as well. I've listened to a good few of your podcasts now with you um, and Jeff. And um, I'm a big fan of yours as well. So we're, we're in a circle of trust and love here. Well, great. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, so the first question is now, obviously, we're here to talk about and, and I'm just going to say it right out of the gate. High and Dry is my favorite Def Leppard album. And we're here under the auspices of talking about High and Dry, but we're not going to limit our conversation to that. And and I just want to start things off here. A a big, broad question. Why Def Leppard? You're a huge fan of Def Leppard. What is it about Def Leppard that makes you such a fan? Def Leppard are my childhood band. So I'm now 42. I, I, I appreciate I look like I'm about 52, but I've had a, I've had a hard, hard life, Jeremy. Um, so and essentially, it does stem from that. Def Leppard are probably not quite as good as I think they are, but I don't care about that because they've sort of, they're, they're through the story and like, you know, the ups and downs of like my life and what have you. And essentially... When I was 10 years old in 1988, my brother was really into Iron Maiden, and he's three years older than me. And I've heard you talk before, uh, Jeremy, about your older brother right. and the way you followed their musical tastes. And he was just, he was like, had a monogamous relationship with Iron Maiden. That, that's, <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's what you do. You find one band and you really love them. So I said to my brother, oh, I might get into Iron Maiden. Very concerted efforts. I hadn't even heard them, but I liked all of the posters. And he was like, well, no, get into your own get into your own band so that wasn't a case of him saying to me you know you're not allowed to like them as well he was he was just saying it would be beneficial to have your own band and he just very haphazardly says oh there's a band called Def Leppard I think they're they're okay why don't you go on and get into them so I went to uh, the shop with my pocket money and it just so happens that Def Leppard have released their love bites which is you know is a big power ballad and all of this so there's there's nothing cool about this uh, Jeremy I had a no, it's not me sort of, you know, hair and Led Zeppelin in 1969 or anything like that. It's a big 80s power pop metal type ballad thing. But that was on sale. It was a 12-inch, and crucially, it had that on it. And then on the B-side, it had Billy's Got a Gun Live of Pyromania. 
very different type of song. Mm. And uh, like a remix of Excitable, which is another song off Hysteria, which is quite distinctly different to the rest of the songs on Hysteria as well. So essentially, I then got really lucky where I did actually like this stuff uh, very much. And then uh, back in the day, so this like 1988, there used to be a man who used to come around the streets um, by ours and he used to sell pirate copies of albums and videos. And he used to come around, John, his name was. So it's like just John the video man, but he sold that. He had albums as well. And he had a pirate copy of Hysteria that I bought for £2. I'm not too sure how much that is, the dollars, $3.50, something Something like that. Yeah, yeah. And then I um, essentially listened to that all summer, really got into them. And then from that point onwards, it was a journey backwards for me, discovering all of the stuff that came previous. So when we talk about High and Dry later, High and Dry sounds nothing like Hysteria whatsoever. I mean, it sounds like a completely different band. So that was an interesting sort of discovery for me because you go Hysteria, that sounds like, hey, they listen to Pyromania, which sounds completely different. Then you go back to High and Dry, and that sounds completely different. And then you go back to On Through the Night. So, and I think that was part of the attraction is like you're discovering all of these different sounds. And as a sort of 10, 11 year olds, mm-hmm. it was like, oh, wait, I've almost discovered four bands in one here. Yeah. So I think that's the, the start of it. Yeah, that's awesome. And and we talked uh, a little beforehand. I'm, I'm older than Neil. Uh, I'm 53, so I'm a little bit older. So this idea of going backwards is kind of true here. Uh, High and dry was the entry to me into Def Leppard. You know, I remember a friend bringing it. We had an art class at school and the teacher would let us play records. So people would bring their records in and, and this guy hot off the presses had gotten a high and dry. I had heard some of on through the night, my brother played in the band and they played wasted, you know, so I knew some of the stuff from just secondhand, but he brought this high and dry record in. And I can remember at that time thinking, and I didn't know I hadn't dug in and done it, but I can remember thinking this kind of reminds me of back in black for some reason. Yeah. And and that's the Mutt Lang signature, right? And we'll talk about some yeah. of that, but this was the album that really sucked me in. And I finally, the Christmas of 82, I got my own copy, you know, this album on, on vinyl in 82. And that was just the one that I was cranking the heck out of it. And then, you know, when Pyromania came out and Hysteria, I got those too. But I think yeah. a lot of the times it's nostalgic for us. Like you said, right? Getting hooked on Love Bites in 1988 wasn't cool, maybe, but that's the nostalgia. That's We always have a special place in our heart for that first time we hear a band, right? And it and it pulls us in. But here's the interesting thing about Def Leppard to me. They were considered part of that new wave of British heavy metal, right? And we, maybe it's not as bad in the UK, but here in the US, I don't know why music fans do this, but it's like we begrudge bands that get popular. You know, they get popular and all of a sudden we say, oh, they sold out because they got popular, which to me is just crazy, right? I mean, I loved High and Dry, one of my favorite albums of all time. Pyromania was a great album. And yet, as they get more and more popular, all these metal fans all of a sudden well they sold out just because they got popular it's kind of crazy yeah i mean and it's a strange one because death leopard's journey from 1983 to 1992 is one of increasing commerciality maybe increasing the pop sensibility in the songs and maybe losing that 
I don't think he would ever metal, but like sort of hard rock edge to mm-hmm. an extent. Then in 1992, after Adrenalize, he sort of they turn that around a little bit with uh, like Odds and Sods album they've got called um, Ret- Retroactive. Right. But it's it's really funny the whole argument, well not argument, the debate around Death Leopard and the new wave of British heavy metal. It's because most people who will have that new wave of British heavy metal conversation, and I, I, I'd be one of them. No one involved in that conversation wants Death Leopard to be part of it. Exactly. So all of the people who are really into new wave of British heavy metal, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love Iron Maiden and all these bands and whatever, but all of the people who love those bands, they don't want Death Leopard in the new right. wave of British heavy metal. They don't want them to be part of that. And then if you listen to the band themselves, they didn't particularly um, want to be part of it. So I don't think they are part of it. But what's really interesting is that Def Leppard had a little bit of success there at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they released the uh, Def Leppard EP, self-financed and what have you, uh, in 1979. And you get some media traction from um, a magazine in in Britain called Sounds, which predates me. I, I don't actually physically re- remember that. And it's Sounds who actually creates it's Jeff Barton, who's the editor. He actually creates this um, the phrase, new wave of British heavy metal, and it becomes the scene. You get lots of good press and what have you. They go over to America, they tour, do pretty well. After the release of the first album, they're playing Sheffield City Hall, which isn't a massive venue, but in Britain, there's lots of, in the cities, there's lots of these theatres that hold around two and a half thousand people. Um, And they're about as big as you get. This is back in the early 80s. You've got Earl's Court in London, Wembley, but there isn't big arenas really um, back then, but there's not many. And they play there. And they're on the crest of a wave and they do really well, but they're not massive. Right. And then from that point, they nosedive completely because of exactly what you said. The whole um, Sounds magazine turns on them. You know, it's pre-internet. There's three television channels in Britain. There's like four music magazines Mm -hmm. and they hold a lot of sway and they hold a lot of influence. And there's articles in there about them selling out to America, you know, a dollar. They get bottled and canned at the, the Redham Festival. Yeah. Doesn't help. Doesn't help that Joe Elliott goes out, you know, in a red pair of leather trousers and a white top with red hearts on it, you know, while everyone else is, you know, metal and studs and all of this type of thing. And they never recover that. They never recover from that until 1987 when Animals released. And it's like, but they've got two very different trajectories, um, Death Leopard. What happens to them in the UK, which is essentially nothing for seven years. Right. And then what happens to them? Um, on the back of bringing on a heartbreak on MTV and, and Pyromania, um, and, and then they break, break massively in America. I would have loved to have been, seen that in person. Well, and here's the thing. That was one of my questions. And you kind of you started going down that road is I didn't realize until listening to you and then reading some other things that Def Leppard wasn't as popular there as they are here until much later. And I think Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was that Adrenalize album, which was the only one that charted higher in the UK than in the US. Am I correct on that? Or maybe it's even, uh, which that blew me away to see it. Now I was in the heartland, right? I grew up in Oklahoma, middle of the US. And I got to tell you, when Pyromania came out, every redneck with a mullet had a Union Jack (laughs) shirtless you know sleeveless union jack shirt i mean that's what you wore once that album came out they were huge and that's the only tour i've seen them 
live on, by the way, was Pyromania. Oh, um, wow. And it was, I mean, it was awesome. But I've been guilty, Neil. I just will confess right now. I wrote probably 10 years ago, I actually had a review published of High and Dry. And I remember, I remember saying in the review, and I got some heat for this, but I was trying to be funny, right? I remember saying in the review, this was Def Leppard's best from before they became a band for girls. I remember saying that, right? And I kind of feel bad because I loved Pyromania. I loved Hysteria. They were phenomenal albums, but I did jump on that whole bandwagon about them selling out, even though personally, I still really liked it, but that was kind of the the mentality, right? And it happens with every band. Mm. You know, if you go see a, a band one tour and it's all guys then if you go the next tour and girls have discovered them oh they're not cool anymore you don't want to see the band anymore and it's just it's just silly tell me if i'm right when i say this def leppard joe elliott for instance i Hmm. see them as being much more influenced by like your david bowie's mott the hoople not necessarily you know, where Iron Maiden might have been more into Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, you know, so I see the the influences are a little different. Now, one of my favorite bands in the world of all time is UFO. I love UFO. I very much see a UFO influence in Def Leppard. I see it in Joe. Joe Elliott watched Phil Mogg. Okay, the mm. way the way he holds the mic stand. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, discount anything Joe did, but, and I think he would even tell you he was really influenced by UFO. Am I correct? Did UFO have a big part in their inspiration? You think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, was, there's, there's a book called Animal Instinct and in the back of that, they have these lists. So it's from like 1986 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, they have these lists of favorite albums and the, the strangers in the night. Um, that's what it's called, isn't it? The, the live album. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like the Vespers, like like one of the the renowned like mm-hmm. classic live albums. That that's listed in there. And I think you're right. Def Leppard are very much a band that wear their influences on their sleeve, quite like quite unashamedly. To be honest, I wouldn't normally enter an argument if you don't like Def Leppard. That's fine. I I I totally get it. It's like it's like mushrooms. I love mushrooms, but I can fully understand why other people might hate them. Right. And I can see why you could hate Def Leppard. I'm not I'm not blind to that. There's lots of things that you think, oh, I'm not keen on that. I'm not keen on that. I'm not keen on that. I think the reason that the increased commerciality or the increased pop sensibility from the 80s mm-hmm. isn't a type of selling out or isn't just you know, chasing the dollar or whatever. It's because for the majority of that band, Steve Clark, less so um, at the time, he was very heavily influenced by like Led Zeppelin, essentially just trying to look like Jimmy Page. Um, exactly, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> but if you take um, Rick Savage, bass player, and you take Joe Elliott, I mean, they're absolutely, the, the main thing they're into is David Bowie, T-Rex, Sweet, Motti Hoople. You'll never, ever see an interview with Joe Elliott when he doesn't mention Motti Hoople. It just, right. it just doesn't happen, right? So that early 70s glam, which is very pop, is a massive part of their musical education and their upbringing. And I actually think when Phil Collins comes along and Pete Willis goes in high and dry, I think they're on that trajectory anyway. But I think Phil Collins coming in and Pete Willis leaving 
cements that trajectory where it's definitely going to carry on because I think then what you have is you have three members of that band out of the five who are heavily into that glam scene. I mean, if you look at the bands that Phil Collin was in before, that oh, yeah. like Girl and Dumb Blondes, I mean, it's all, you know, it's it's, it's all glam. very glam. Yeah, totally. So I think when he comes in just after Hysteria and probably begins to explain that increased sort of pop oh. sensibility and maybe a slight, a slight less rock or metal edge is... I think that tips the balance a bit in the band where you've got three out of the five then who are he- like really heavily into that type of music. Yeah. Just one more thing on UFO. There's a great UFO documentary mm-hmm. and they're actually interviewing Steve Harris from Iron Maiden and yeah, Steve's yeah. talking about the influence of UFO. Yeah, And that's the thing about UFO. All these bands they influenced got way bigger and way more successful than yeah. UFO ever did, right? UFO was kind of their worst enemy, and that's a whole other story. But Steve Harris has this great line. He said, Pete Way, he was just all over the place. He was a wild man, and he had this pair of striped leather pants that were just dreadful. He said, but it it was a week later that that me and Rick Savage both owned the same pair of pants, right? So, again, yeah. very influential now you mentioned one of my questions here you mentioned pete willis pete willis left he he started the recording process for pyromania correct so yeah he was in the middle and i think it even says on pyromania that he recorded some of the rhythm tracks so they credit him with with some some of the stuff too so he's a founding member right he's one of the original members so the story is pete had and here's you know Saying Pete Willis had a drinking problem kind of seems ironic because drinking seems to have been a common thread for many members of the band, right? But apparently he was really out of control. What did Phil Collins bring when he replaced Pete? What did he bring? You kind of touched on it. But what did he bring other than the fact that he wasn't drinking as much as Pete? (laughs) What else did he bring to the band? I think, I mean, firstly, Pete Willis is superb and he's brilliant on those first two albums and it's Pete Willis who bumps into Joe Elliott and introduces Joe Elliott to Rick Savage so Pete Willis is like really instrumental excuse upon in the creation of um of Def Leppard and he's, he, he is there right from the beginning in regards to what does Phil bring I think Pete Willis is a really good guitarist but I think Phil Collin brings a little bit more of that obvious guitar virtuosity or sort of like shredding you know you can see you know where you've got like the Eddie Van Halen influence from like you know the late 70s sort of starting to creep into that early 80s um, metal and rock scene you see like Phil Collins pulled towards that more than say um, Pete Willis was and I mean and essentially you see that Phil Collins best work I would argue is probably still on Pyromania when he just turns up and yeah. they say to him, we need you to record solos. And the first, essentially his um, solo for Stage Fright, which is the third song um, on Pyromania, that essentially gets him the job. Yeah. Right? Then he does the solo, Photograph, Foolin', Rock of Ages, and Rock, Rock, Till You Drop, okay? And there to this day, especially the Photograph one, and the, the Photograph solo and the outro solo in Photograph, really add to the atmosphere of that song. So when he first comes in in Pyromania, I think the quality of his solos and his sort of virtuosity, and he's, he recently did that that G three tour with um, yeah. Yeah. Joe Satriani and and what, what have you. So 
I mean, I've personally, even though I love Death Leopard, I've never thought of him in that, that higher level. You know, like that Steve Vai, complete like madness, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of just off the scale technical ability. But he definitely brought more of that. I think secondly, what he, he did bring, and this is really important, is the general consensus seems to be that Phil Collins is like one of just like the nicest guys going. Yeah. And he's like a yeah. really, really nice fella. And I think he brought a lot of harmony to the band. And in particular, he struck up a really good friendship with Steve Clark. Like, like they were like absolutely inseparable for years. So that was good in terms of like the harmony of the band. What it also did as well is I think you, st- you then started getting a more integrated and thoughtful twin guitar approach where through Pyromania and then Hysteria, uh, you get these like orchestrated twin guitars happening much more and it's a lot more sophisticated and nuanced and and what have you so you know like you buy a guitar tab book to learn how to play riffs and whatever you get a black sabbath one and i love black sabbath mm-hmm. but it's like riff riff few chords solo <laughs> riff riff whatever if you got like i've got the tab book for hysteria it's mad it's like so there's like seven different guitars oh, and yeah. you play any one part on your own it doesn't sound like the song it's- and i think the two of them developed that as a orchestration and then again that's probably what made them commercially very successful because it's like you know it's a very polished sound but at the same time they probably sure they would have lost quite a few fans with that sort of approach as well and the third thing i would say is that his ability to sing makes a massive difference to Def leopard at this point because Def leopard always wanted to be a cross between acdc and queen so they wanted the rock riffs. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, many parts of High and Dry, let's be honest, sound a bit like an ACDC tribute yeah. album. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you get to start, there are some harmonies in the back and vocals, like bringing on a heartbreak, but it's, they still sound like your classic rock band back and vocals, where I think they call them like gang vocals, where me and you, even if we're not brilliant singers, um, we could stand around a mic and we could just blast out sort of like a rock chorus and it would sound good if you put a load of reverb on it right. or whatever. But I think when he comes in and one of the things that Mutt Lang gets him to do on Pyromania is as much backing vocals as he does getting him playing guitar because his voice complements Joe's because it's deeper and what have you. Mm-hmm. Then, so you've then got three people in the band then. You've got Phil, Joe and Rick Savage who were all like actually really good singers. And to be honest, that the same thing repeats itself in 1992 when Vivian Campbell joins. Absolutely. Also a very good singer. So, like, if you go and see a Def Leppard show, like, now, their backing vocals are the best they've ever been, you know, um, by a mile. So I think Phil coming in allowed them to do that sort of Queen studio thing, loads of layered um, backing vocals and harmonies and create that sound. So I think he brought that as well as playing the guitar. So I think that's, that's... probably as important to be honest. I I agree. And I'm glad you talked about the vocals because that's one of the things I wanted to say is they are phenomenal. They live, they bring it. I mean, it's, they're really good. And you've probably seen this. There's a clip of the, uh, whatever it's called the classic rock cruise or whatever, where Joe lost his voice. Have you seen clips? Oh, of yeah. They, they do the show without Joe Elliott. Joe comes out at the beginning and says, I have no voice. I've lost my voice. And so we're going to do this with Phil and Viv are going to sing. We've got some friends. So other, other bands on the bill came in and sang some of the songs, but they start out and that song that, that Phil sings, Vivian sings. I mean, it's like, I I don't want to say they don't need Joe, 
but it sounded phenomenal without Joe. You know, here's Vivian singing lead vocal. Here's Phil singing lead vocal. I mean, they're a talented vocal band for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard it, but on the, it's funny when you say the latest Step Leopard album because the latest Step Leopard album is five years ago. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's like dog years or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They won real year in the Death Leopard Wells or 10 years. But anyway, their latest album, six years ago, there's a song on that called uh, We Belong, where in the verse parts, they all take a line each. Even Rick Allen um, wow. the, uh, sings in it. So that's something they did on a recent album. And it's quite interesting to hear their voices individually. And I mean this in the nicest way. So if there's any big Death Leopard fans like listening at them, don't be sending me bullets in the post. But they've actually got quite strange sound and voices individually. And I'm not sure I'd necessarily want to listen to them individually singing songs. It's, it's okay in that song. It works well in that song. But when you put them all together, it creates a lovely racket. It's like really, really, it's really good. They're quite good at imitating each other's voices as well. Phil right. Collin can make himself really sound like Joe Elliott. Yeah, yeah. Like for years, he sings a bit in a song called Make Love Like a Man, not one of my favourites, to be honest, on Adrenalize. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the video came out that there's a little bit in that that Phil Collins sings. I didn't even realise it was him singing it because he sounds so close to Joe Elliott. Yeah, yeah. And he is, Vivian, both. You know, I'm a guitar nerd, so I watch interviews with guitar players all the time. Phil and Viv both just come off as very down-to-earth and there were a lot of, you mentioned that, that G3 tour, right? With uh, Vi and Satriani. And, and I can remember when they said Phil Collin was going to become a people are like Phil Collin. And that's just typical. And again, if someone's popular, people dismiss them, but Phil is a f- great guitar player, very technical. Well, Vivian's an awesome guitar player. Either one of yeah. them could have been on the G3 tour. Right. But I get the impression that they're about the song. Yeah, they could go on and shred and make it a guitar, but that's not what they're about. You know, they're about a mm. song. And and either one of them could at any minute just start out and shred and be Mr. 80 shred, but but they don't do that because it doesn't serve the song. So yeah, Phil's very, very underrated for sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about high and dry. Yes. You and and I'll point people to your your episode on the song "Let It Go" because that you get into to detail on high and dry. But I want to ask you, why is this album important for Def Leppard? What was so important about this album? To call it a transition album does it a disservice because it stands alone mm-hmm. and is a really really good album as it is. It's not just a stepping stone to something. That's better, even though I think it probably is. Mm. I think it's where you sort of start. You know, we said earlier about if you listen to Hysteria, which I think we would agree is what the vast majority of the public in whatever country across the world would think of when they think of Death Leopard. Totally, totally. Even though they, it sounds like a different band, I think it's the first buds coming out of taking them in the right direction. Mm. I think, well, firstly, I think it shows... The songs are better than what they are on On Through the Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely. So, songs like, you know, Switch 65, Bring It On A Heartbreak, Let It Go, You Got Me Running, which is possibly the best 
underrated Death Leopard song from their whole catalog. It is so funny you said that. That's my favorite song on this album is You Got Me Running. That's my favorite song yeah. on the album. Yeah. So there's like, so, and it's, it's funny actually, You Got Me Running. Joe Elliott said that that was the pop precursor to Photograph. It mm-hmm. was like, that was this, this, that was the springboard to Photograph. So essentially, because Photograph was actually half written at that time when High and Dry uh, was written, but they hadn't finished it. So essentially, you got me running and the sound of that and what they were trying to do with that was not a failed attempt, but was like a failed attempt to what they did a photograph. But in that failure, they created, it's such a brilliant song. It's like, it's, and I think that's an example of just the songmanship and, and the, um, the, the craftsmanship. You do start getting those back and vocals a little bit more. You've obviously got the Mutlang production. And I think it's on that album where they just, not to say they didn't try hard on the first album, but I think it's where they become a little bit more professional as such, yeah. which isn't particularly a great thing in rock, to be honest. It's not cool or anything. But to put it into perspective, when they're recording High and Dry, Joe Elliott's working on a building site at the same time to uh, earn money. You know, they've had that sort of nosedive in the UK and um, what have you. Things aren't going well. They're, they're walking into pubs in the UK and people are trying to start, well, in Sheffield, people are trying to sort of start fights with them because they think the flash. Steve, <laughs> Steve Clark gets beat up one night. Like, all of this stuff um, happens. So they've had this like rise, it's looked really good. They go into high and dry at a real low, you know, with the Redden Festival. They've done a little club tour as well because what happens is in the winter, they actually wait for Mutlang to come and produce that album. But he's producing the um, the Foreigner album for. Yeah. So he's, fin- he's finishing that off. So they wait for him rather than start the album. So they do like a club tour, like little venues, you know, that you can fit 400 people in around the UK. And no one turns up. Mm. So like, only a year later, they would like be packing in 400 people to these like little venues and they do it and there's like 40 people there. Mm. So, you know, they've really sort of started tanking. Um, everyone hates them, um, <laughs> essentially. He's working on a building site and what have you. And they wait for Mutlang. And I think at that point, there's a realisation where we go, right, we really need to like think about this and do what we're doing. And I think what Mutlang does and they're incredibly gracious to Mutlang. At no point did they ever underplay the influence of Mutlang in their career. They always just say, yeah, yeah, he, he, you know, he's absolutely instrumental. And I think what Mutlang does is just really, really small things, like where bringing on the heartbreak is called um, a certain heartache. Mm. And it's just like, well, just just change that. Change it to bringing on a heartbreak. And it's just all of these, there's lots of little things like that. So... Um, you said you listened to the Let It Go episode. So when the rain falls is the right. is essentially the same song as Let It Go. But it's literally about Joe Elliott being in his house and looking outside and it's raining and feeling a bit miserable. <laughs> yeah. And Mutlang turns around to him and says, yeah, that's, that's all very well and good, but it's not a universally sort of cool thing to do a rock song about. So, you know, instead they do a very macho song about a sex act yeah. and what have you. And, you know, and that's more in, that's more in keeping um, with it. And I think there's just lots of those things where it's just like, let's just turn the screw a little bit more and make everything a little bit better. And I think it's the point at which they really start taking it serious and start a certain level of like craftsmanship and what have you. 
Well, I remember reading the, cause I was starting to get hit parader magazine and circus yeah. magazine, and I'm reading all these American music magazines. And the thing you'd hear about on through the night, they'd always highlight the fact that they're so young. Joe Elliott was 18 and, uh, you know, Rick Allen was probably 16 or by yeah. now, you know, went on through the night came out, but it was always, these guys are really good for such a young band. They'd always throw that little disclaimer. These guys are really good for such a young band. Yeah. But when high and dry came out, it was just, these guys are really good. This is a really good album. And, you know, like you mentioned Mutt Lang, I think Mutt Lang is kind of famous for driving artists crazy, right? For, no, let's do that again. I think you can do it better. Let's do that again. Let's do it again. Mutt, we've got it. No, let's do it some more. But that's kind of the way he worked, right? That's why it takes so long for a Mutt Lang album. I had forgotten about Foreigner 4, but I mean, look at his track record. Back in Black, Foreigner 4, which was a huge album. By the way, I'm just going to throw this recommendation out. Vivian Campbell played with Lou Graham on one of Lou's solo albums, but then there's a project called Shadow Kings from like around 90, 91. I don't know what happened. That album is phenomenal. It's Lou Graham with Vivian Campbell, What's Not to Like, but it just vanished. I just say, check out Shadow King. It's it's a really good album, but that's the thing that Mutt Lang did. There's a documentary about hysteria where they're they're breaking it down and they're talking about playing different tracks that they have layered and it's there's so much going on i think with def leopard mutt i'm sure saw these guys are to to your point right they recognize the importance of mutt lang you know sometimes you'll see these guys down the road that try and diss their producers and say yeah he screwed us up he messed but none of that from def leopard as far as mutt lang goes and 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 it shows just a real quick question what was his involvement, Mutt Lang's involvement with Pyromania? Because I know he, he started and left early or came in late. Or, what was his involvement with Pyromania? It's funny, that seems to happen on like every album. <laughs> with Def Leppard in that first 10 years, the same story sort of repeated again and again and again, where like you can't get Mutt Lang, Mutt Lang's not going to do it, the way Mutt Lang ends up doing it. So as, as a result, high and dry, Pyromania and Hysteria, all end up being uh, produced by Mutt Lang. Adrenalize is like executively produced by him, but is mostly a fella called Pete uh, Woodruff who does it. So yeah, he does those three albums, the Hysteria, the Pyromania, and High and Dry going backwards, that triplet. He produces all of them. I mean, do you, do you know the story about Joe Elliott? recording the vocals for bringing on the heartbreak and what happens no no around that so Let's hear it this is, this is that mutt lang thing again and this is this whole idea of like they're genuinely getting better under the tutorage of someone like mutt lang who takes this sort of father figure role where joe elliott's trying to sing the chorus to bring it on the heartbreak uh, i'm not going to try and sing it i know you <laughs> like to sing little bits of songs jeremy i've heard you do it uh, <laughs> right but I, i'm not going to do it and anyway you can't do it Essentially, it's, it's too hard. Anyway, so we, um, he throws his toys out of the pram. He walks out to the studio. And next door is David Coverdale. So Joe Elliott then does essentially the worst thing. He's just come out of his studio because he can't like hit these like notes or whatever. And then he goes and sees David Coverdale 
go and sing some song that's like four hundred times harder. <laughs> do it in one take and go boom, and I like, just like knock it out of the park. Mm. So anyway, David Coverdale sort of like takes him like under his wing and they're sitting in the studio and he just sort of you know they get drunk together mm-hmm. and there's always these cool quotes where he says. Don't worry, brother Joe, we'll be fine and all of this. And then anyway, the next day, Joe Elliott goes in and he's you know, really focused and he absolutely nails bringing on the heartbreak mm. to the point that the manager, Peter Mensch, who's in the studio, comes in and actually says to Butlang, what have you done to our singer? Because he's like <laughs> literally transformed. And I think that happens with all of them. Rick Allen says that when people say to him, who's your biggest drum influence or who made you better as a drummer? He says Mutt Lang. When yeah. you hear Phil Collins say who made you a better guitarist, he said he say Mutt Lang. Yeah. Rick Savage, who made you the better bass player, Mutt Lang, Joe Elliott, because he he's just this guru um, or what have you. So I think well, you've got to have it there in the first place. They're not puppets, Steph Leppard. I think you know sometimes you might get accused of that. They've got this talent, but there's no doubt that part of the importance of High and Dry is the introduction to Mutt Lang and just that sort of that real pushing and focusing of energies. Right. It is fun, though. And this is just shows you the influence of Mutt Lang and producers in general. Go listen to, I think it came out in 91, Brian Adams' album, uh, Wake Up the Neighbors. Okay? Yeah. And I've, I've made the joke, right? All you got to do is switch heads, right? And it's a Def Leppard album. You put yeah. Joe Elliott's head on Brian Adams, and that is a Def Leppard album. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to discount it. It's a great album. But you hear the drum sound. The, just the mix, I mean, it sounds... And then listen to a Shania Twain album. You hear yeah. Def Leppard drums and Def Leppard backing vocals, you know? So, yeah. again, that's just the... You could say the same about Ted Templeman, right? You listen to a Doobie Brothers, people think I'm crazy when I say it. You you hear it vocally. You listen to the vocals on a Doobie Brother album compared to the vocals on a Van Halen album there's a lot of similarity there, right? Again, that's just, it's amazing and they're invisible to us, right? But that's the impact that a producer, a good producer has on the music that we hear. I heard you mentioning about uh, Tom Allen, who mm-hmm. uh, record, who produced On Through the Night by Def Leppard. And you were saying about how, if you listen, you can really hear the, the Judas Priest in it. Because obviously oh. Tom Allen did a lot of the Judas Priest albums. And yeah. There's, there's that definite uh, stamp, as well as sonically and the production techniques. I think another reason that you get a lot of similarity between all of those albums that you mentioned from Def Leppard through to Shania Twain and what have you, is that Mutt Lang actually does a lot of those backing vocals himself. And yeah. a lot of them, as well as, you know, whether it be Def Leppard or Brian Adams or Shania Twain, it's his voice in the back layered and layered and layered. So it is actually the same voice on a lot of those tracks yeah. as well. That's funny. That's funny. So let's look at this album and I'm not, we're not going to go track by track, but I would like, I would ask you just name the top three or four songs on this album for you and why. I think if I could have them together because they are together on the album, I would, I would view bringing on the heartbreak and switch six two five as one song because bringing in a heartbreak, you know, it's still raining out as the bass to the bum 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 comes mm-hmm. in, um, mm-hmm. switch six two five, and that was their intention. You, you you see interviews with Joe Elliott and everything where they wanted switch six two five to be like a coda to right. bring it on the heartbreak. And I think put it this way, either together that's the best song, or 
Breaking on the Heartbreak and Switch 65 would be my um, number one and two. Okay. Switch 65, because there's no death left, it's that sounds anything like that, like right. re- um, remotely. And there's a lot of nostalgia and sort of sentiments with that now as well. So when they play that to this day, that's, that's a Steve Clark composition entirely him. So whenever they play that now, you know, live, you'll get all of the Steve Clark stuff on the screens at the back. And it's, you know, it's, it's like nice. It's like it's, it's like a positive memorial for him right. and whatever. But it's just brilliant. I remember there was a video that came out as in a video cassette for VHS mm-hmm. at the end of the 80s, which was a live video of Def Leppard in Denver, um, in the round in your face, uh, it's called. And I got that before I got high and dry. But at the end, so that they play Bringing on a Heartbreak and that, that's the first time I'd heard it. I loved it. And then at the end, the end credits where you see, you know, them packing up the stage and everything, it was, it switched 625. And I never realised it was a Death Leopard song, but I remember thinking, oh, that's a really cool song they put at the end there. So I'm bringing on a heartbreak to me is, if you've got a film that doesn't matter how many times you've seen it, if it comes on the TV, and like, you know, even if it's 20 minutes in, you'll you'll just watch it. Like Shawshank Redemption or, or Jaws or, or something like that. Bringing on the heartbreak to me is like the Shawshank Redemption or Jaws of Death Leopard songs where some songs, you hear them too much. I'm okay if I don't hear Pour Some Sugar on me for another two years. That's fine. It's not going to kill me. You know what I mean? But bringing on a heartbreak, I still love as much now, if not more, than I did when I first heard it in probably like 1989 for me. So they're probably my top two. How would they compare to maybe your top one or two? That's probably three for me. I really like it, but I mentioned you got me running. I've just yeah. always loved that song. It's just a great hooky. And when you, you said it, that to me could have been a hit when I hear you got me running. That sounds like a hit song to me. I, I love that one. I had as my number two high and dry Saturday night, high and dry was my number two. And then I have bring it on the heartbreak. And a funny thing too, for me is, I don't hear it so much now, but but I used to think that Let It Go and Another Hit and Run sounded exactly the same. And, and I always, when I'd hear it, I'd, I'd almost think it was still the same song playing. As I listen to it now, obviously they're different songs, but I can remember on the album, I was like, why would they put two songs that sound so much the same back to back? You know, but I love those two songs. Also, in fact, it's easier for me to just tell you the only song that I think is filler, and that's no, 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 and it's not a bad song, but I think it's the weakest song on the record. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, there's sort of seven songs that I love, and two that are solid. They're okay, they're fine, right, you know. Right. And for me, it's no, 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 and um, on through the night, mm-hmm. you know, I like them. They're fine, but they're not comparable to the rest of the album, and. You Got Me Running would be my number, my number three. And it's really interesting that you say about another hit and run because that's one of my favourites as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you, there's a bit in another hit and run where you only really hear it if you've got headphones on. Because another hit and run is like Def Leppard's first political song. No, you wouldn't think of Def Leppard as having political songs. They've done a few more in like recent years, like Paper Sun, for example, off Euphoria 1999. That's about like the Omaha, the, the Omaha, the Omar bombing in Northern Ireland gotcha. that happened yeah. in '98, and there's a few other things like from the inside, like heroin abuse, and that's not political, but right. socially aware. Let's put exactly. it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, but another hit and run is um, is actually about like 1980s um, early Britain uh, and the, the 
economic and sort of social situation in it. So Beth Leppard are obviously from Sheffield, which is mm-hmm. very like industrial city. They like the make steel. And in the early 80s, pretty much all of these industrial towns and cities um, in the UK, mostly in the north, the manufacturing, the industries closed down and, yeah. they're, you know, they're in states yeah. of decay, unemployment's high, all of this uh, type of thing. And another hit and run, you wouldn't think it is because you think, oh, it's about another hit and run it must be but it's actually about sort of the band being like they're being like kept in their place by where you know they're like working class lads in a town in Sheffield and that's where they belong and they can't get out of the factories and and that it's like the government structures and the way things are built that um is stopping them from like getting on anyway there's a cool bit if you listen to your (laughs) you listen to your headphones and I thought this was brilliant when I was like 11 or 12. You know what it's like when you're 11 or 12, Jeremy? It takes very, very little to amuse you. Exactly. <laughs> right. And there's a bit in another hit run where it slows down and it goes, uh, I can't remember, he sings, uh, you, you hit me when I'm down. And it goes dead quiet. And, it was- and, if, you, and then if you listen, if you listen on, on your headphones, you, all you hear is, bastard. Yes. yes. Like yeah. Right. And, and and I thought I thought that's what it said. I thought you were going to tell me it said something else, but that's no, what no, I hear. No. And and it's right. It's like a just a build up whisper, you know. But yeah, I would always catch that part. And I thought that's what it was saying, but I didn't understand why. And now with your explanation, that's, it makes yeah, it that, more that's sense. That's why it, it's, it's essentially about the powers that be keeping you in your place and then he goes the bastard bastard like that so it's good it's funny you mentioned because because i have the same bottom two songs i have i have no 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 as my last i have on through the night though i i thought it was cool there's a a funny little drum beat on on through the night where he's hitting some toms and which is kind of cool but i thought it was cool that they named a song after their last album i thought that was kind of clever so they have a song that's the same title as their last previous album right but like you got me running lady strange that's a great song too i mean it, it's this is one of those albums what do they you say all killer no filler i mean there are a couple songs that that are not as like you said that are not as good as some of the other but but there's not a song on here that i fast forward through yeah you know, when i listen to it i listen to the whole thing we were talking at the beginning we were holding up our our vinyl copies of this and comparing just a funny little thing at the end of no, no, no on the original album. So the one I got in 82 is an original release apparently. Mm. Cause at the end of no, 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 he just screams, no, 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 no. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. They say on the cassette, he says it 46 times. And I think on the album, it's probably around there too. But, but, you know, those of us that remember where you'd have your little record changer, where you'd go to bed at night and stack up three LPs, you know, and that's how you ruined all your records, by the way, they drop on each other and slide against each other. But you just hear this, no, 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 go on and on. And finally the record would end and the next record would drop down. But in later versions like Neil's version, it mm-hmm. fades out. It doesn't. It yeah. doesn't say it that long, which I would actually prefer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's a little bit um, harsh on the ear. Interestingly, you know the on through the night um, thing that you said about 
the song title coming from the title of the previous album. That's yet another ACDC link and another um, ACDC like a nod because they did that because Highway to Hell has got um, If You Want Blood, oh, you've got it on it, which is the title of the I, album. Before. I never so even... That's a very knowing thing that they did. Yeah, I never even thought of that. That's funny. It's, you know, in hindsight, you know, looking back at this album, and that's the thing, it's hard to separate. How much is nostalgia... Because you know you have a you have personal connections with albums because they meant so much to you when you when you listen to them. So I go back and I think, how much of you know the reason I like this is due to nostalgia versus how much because it's a really good album. So I'm trying to be objective when I say this, but I'm just throwing that out there as I might have some biases in there. I think this is a killer album, you know. And if I was going to give it rank it nine out of or, or 10 stars i'd have to give it 10 i mean i think it's that strong you know i can i can think of a handful of albums that i love from front to back you know all the way through and and this is one of those albums i mean to me and i know i'm not in the majority here to me this is my favorite def leppard album if i'm gonna go to a def leppard album this is the one i grab you might not be in the majority but I think you are part of a quite a large group who feel like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it, um, particularly on like social media and things these days, there, there is a lot of people who absolutely high and dry is their favourite uh, Def Leppard album uh, by a mile. Now, for me, in a way, I could look at it a little bit different because it's Hysteria, which is the nostal- nostalgic album for mm. me. And yeah, high and dry is because... I discovered it at a young age, but it wasn't out at that time. You know what it's like when something's out at that time and you're discovering it at a particular age, it's got a certain electricity to it. And like, there's a whole, it consumes everything. And it's, it's fantastic. It's just, it's like just the greatest thing in the world. So I wasn't like, I was free when high and dry um, came out. So I think I, in a way I can look at it less nostalgically and less biased. And what I would say is that for me, it probably comes there's, there's 12 Def Leppard studio albums if you count a covers album and an odds and sods right. um, album and retroactive. For me, it probably comes fifth as a whole album. But within that, what I would say is that there's 10 of those albums along the sliding scale of, I think, a very good to mm-hmm. I absolutely will. So coming fifth is still, I That's love it. Pretty good, yeah, totally. And, and what I, I would I... say is the first, the first side of that album you know, thinking in like old school ways of like two sides to an album. I think that first side of the album is probably only bettered in the entirety of Death Leopard's catalog by the first side of Pyromania and the first mm-hmm. side of Hysteria. So mm-hmm. if you were going to look at sides of albums, I'd probably put it up there at the first side, probably about number three out of everything Death Leopard had ever done. It's it's a great side. I mean, it is. It's a great side and and uh, just a great album. Neil, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It, it was awesome. And again, check out the Def Lep Pod podcast. It's amazing. You'll love it. He goes in depth, a lot of stuff on Def Leppard, but also just play some cool stuff. I love the clips you play that, you know, I'll, I'll, st- I'll start on one of these episodes and you're playing a clip that has nothing to do. I'm like, what is that? What are you playing that cheesy 60s song for? But then you tie it in. Uh, so it's just a lot of fun. It's very well done. 
and uh, it's great. How often do you publish? How often do you try to put out a new episode? I try to put one out every three weeks. Over recent months, it's been more like once a month. So I've got, I've got, I'm doing one this weekend. That'll come out next uh, week. Can you give us a sneak peek of what your next episode is going to be about, or is that like top secret? No, 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 that's all. Uh, so the next one is there's a song called Truth, which is or oh, it's Truth question mark. So I don't know how you say that. Okay. Truth, <laughs> truth? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and that's the first song off the Slang album from 1996. So this is the one where they their popularity nosedives completely and there's lots of accusations about them you know trying to do a grunge album and all of this type of thing so i thought we'd tackle that and um have a little look and see what we can what we can squeeze out of that and see what um strange avenues we can take it down awesome i'll I'll be checking it out thanks so much neil and we'll have to have you uh back on again sometime because we'll probably talk about another def leopard album at some point so uh but thanks so much And uh, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much to Neil from the Deflet Pod podcast. And thanks so much to our sponsor, Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry, right here in Spokane, Washington. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, you can reach out to us via email, classicguitarrock at mail.com. We would love to hear from you. And we will see you next time on the Classic Guitar Rock podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.